We're going to start this evening on a two-part series related to work, and actually it's over the next several weeks we'll be looking at other related issues. So this week and next week we'll look at the topic of work, we are then going to look at the topic of wealth, we're going to look at the topic of reward, charity, all these kinds of issues related to what you could say is one general topic. So this is what is in store for us in the weeks to come. And in fact, I want to say this already. Uh, this is part one of our, our study of esteeming work, according to the book of Proverbs. Next week, we'll have part two. Then we're going to take a break for one Wednesday. It's the last Wednesday of January. January. We are going to have a Q&A the last Wednesday of January after this two-part series on esteeming work. And we will have two of our elders from Grace Community Church here, Chris Hamilton, who is the chairman of our elder board, as well as Han Cho. They are going to be here for a Q&A panel, and we are going to talk uh, and, and discuss and answer questions related to work, related to the Christian's attitude toward work, especially in the environment that we find ourselves in today, which is a very challenging one. When we look ahead, we see the the clouds of socialism on the horizon, obviously that spells very significant changes to uh, how, this, how the economy works here uh, in this country. And so there's, there's a lot of questions related to that and how we as Christians are to relate to that. So uh, I will be sending out an email that will uh, ask for questions. Be thinking of this already, even as I teach, and we'll compile those questions. And uh, in that last uh, Wednesday of January... Uh, we will have a a great time of of discussion over those questions. As we turn to tonight's topic on esteeming work, we we realize that this is not something that we can set aside or or put off as something that is perhaps inapplicable to our lives in some way. No, work is central to all of our lives. Uh, Work is foundational. In fact, it fills most of our conversations throughout the day, conversations related to work, to our careers, our occupations, our responsibilities. And when you begin to calculate the numbers, you can see why. If a man begins full-time work at 21 years of age and retires at the age of 65, he will have worked 44 years. Over those 44 years, a man will work on average uh, of 246 days a year. So you take out all the weekends, you take out maybe three weeks for vacation time. Uh, Perhaps part of that is some holidays throughout the year. And you get to an amount of 10,824 working days in in a man's life. 10,824 working working days in a man's life. And if you calculate that a man on average works about eight hours a day, if he's got a full-time job, then he worked more than that, but full-time job, eight hours a day, a man will then have worked 86,592 hours of his life. This certainly is a topic that is very dear to us, is a topic that fills our lives, the topic of work. But though work plays such a central role, work in our culture and even among us sometimes is viewed as a a necessary evil. 
a 2013 survey of working people in this country revealed that 73% of those surveyed worked strictly for a paycheck. In other words, three-quarters of the working population sees no inherent value to their work. They only look at it as a way to pay their bills. They look at it as a way just to get by in life, but they do not attach an inherent value to what they do. For many, work is a necessary evil. And increasingly so, you have people today looking at work as the unjust byproduct of our capitalist system. In fact, more and more, you have people espousing a rhetoric today that looks on employment and the demands of employment as being an an expression of systemic racism or systemic injustice. You have that terminology all the time now in the political rhetoric. Now, this growing disdain for work hasn't always been this way. This growing disdain for work reflects the increasing secularization of our culture, and it is even having an impact on the church. When you remove God from the discussion, then man no longer is an image bearer. He is just a collection of cells and consciousness. And as soon as man is no longer an image bearer who is created to reflect the glorious work of God, then work simply becomes this evil, this injustice. In fact, you ask many people today, and their view of utopia, their view of perfection, is a world without work. A world without work. And this this has really come on the scene in the last generation. I was thinking about this and, and, and just considering the fact of how many people look at their work as a necessary evil they, they don't take joy and contentment in their work and will look at work negatively unless they, are, they like what they do. You, you have that a lot today. People talking about whether they like their work or not. If they like their work, then it's okay to take satisfaction in it. If they like their work, then it's okay to take pride in it. But if they don't like their work, there's no value to it at all. And it's a dramatic shift that has happened. And I was thinking about my, my own dad and how I was raised. And while my dad certainly loves the farm, he's a farmer in Canada, he, he loves that part. But as, as a young child growing up and hearing him talk about work, he saw an inherent dignity in the fact that he worked, period. And that he was raising a family, period. That the mere idea that he was productive to his family and to society around by growing grain and hogs and cattle, that that in itself was something to take joy and pride in. Today, in today's generation, that's largely missing. Work is only good if I like to do it, but if I don't like to do it, it is not good. It has no benefit other than just to pay my bills. 
Well, in light of this growing trend, it's important for us to go back to the Scriptures and to see what the Bible says about work. And there's no better place to turn than the book of Proverbs. There's no book in in, in the Scriptures that deals with so many issues of work as does the book of Proverbs. It's filled with truths, lessons about work and the role of work and, and how we as God-fearers, are to view work in our own lives. And what we're going to do tonight is look at five lessons, and next week we'll look at another five. I think you can survey the book of Proverbs and come up with, with ten important emphases that, is made, that are made by biblical wisdom related to work, emphases that we need to review and refresh in our own thinking, especially as our culture continues to descend into a kind of socialist nightmare. Tonight, five lessons. The first one is this. A biblical esteem for work, a proper biblical respect for work, recognizes that God himself works. It all begins there. And as I said, when you have a society that is increasingly secularized, God has no part of the public discourse. And so understandably, a work ethic in today's environment will be severely skewed. A proper work ethic must begin with this truth that God himself works. God, who is infinitely perfect, is a working God. The common belief, as I said, is that work is a consequence of imperfection. Work is a consequence of the fall. Work is a consequence of sin. And on the other hand, utopia or perfection is the absence of work. That's a common understanding, certainly prevalent in young adults today. And even, not just in the society, but even within the church But biblical wisdom emphasizes that everything in this world that is good and that is praiseworthy, things that we enjoy, all of these good things are the direct result of the work of God. These things that we often take for granted, whether it is the Grand Canyon or El Capitan, whether it is the Central Coast, whether it is the Milky Way, these are all the products of God's work. And not only did He establish and and, and create those things, He continues to this day to work to keep those things together. Biblical wisdom emphasizes that everything good in this world is the result of work. Everything good that we see and enjoy is the product of, of this combination of God's infinite power and His inscrutable wisdom come together to work and to create works. We see this perhaps incidentally, but present nonetheless in the book of Proverbs. For example, in Proverbs 3 verse 19, we read these words, The Lord by His wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And that word founded stood out to me. When you study this word founded in the Old Testament, you see it 
used to refer in other contexts to ambitious building plans. You see it in other places. For example, in 1 Kings and the plans to build the temple, this magnificent, uh, this magnificent place that would uh, host the glory of God and the Ark of the Covenant. And you have this verb founded used to refer to the building of the temple. Or, or it was used in other contexts to refer to the establishment of whole cities and the construction of defensive walls. This verb founded implies significant effort and investment. It describes a major undertaking that usually was only attempted by great leaders who had these resources. And this verb is used in Proverbs 3 verse 19 to refer to the work of God. In fact, when we look elsewhere, if we look to the Psalms, for example, we read that God is to be recognized specifically for His majestic building efforts. He is a builder, a grand designer and architect. And he has put these things together through the power of his might. God works. Proverbs 8 verse 22 to 31 shows or or, or describes this statement by wisdom being personified. Wisdom is personified here as saying this, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, from everlasting, I, wisdom, was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set forth the sea in its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his commands. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. And having my delight in the sons of men. This is is wisdom personified. And when we read this chapter in these verses, we see that work and wisdom are to go hand in hand. They certainly do in God. As God exercises His wisdom, as He brings these things into being. These marvelous things. These amazing, majestic works. And wisdom herself is called a master workman. These words, of course, take us back to Genesis 1. We won't study that right now, but you remember Genesis 1, verse 1, to Genesis 2, verse 3, the the great works of God in creation, how God spoke, let there be, and there was. And He brought these things into existence through the power of His speech. God is a working God. Thus, work itself must never be viewed as a consequence of sin, for God Himself is a God of work. We read read this elsewhere, Psalm 111, verses 2 to 3. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is His work. Or the words of Jesus in John 5, 17. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. We read in texts like Colossians 1 that Jesus holds the creation together by the word of His power. He is working. Man was created to reflect God's glory. In particular, man was created to reflect this working ability to be a master builder as well. We see this in Genesis 1, where God says to Adam and Eve, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And then in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man, Adam in particular, and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and, come, and to keep it. Even before the, the onslaught of sin, even before the first temptation, Adam was called to be a gardener, to cultivate, to work, to subdue, to have dominion over. And this is the way that Adam was to reflect the majestic works of God. That Adam as a vice regent would do what God does in an analogous way, in a a small way, but would reflect God's great working activity. The reality of it is, is that man is no longer in the garden, right? We're not in the garden of Eden. And so we're very familiar with a text like Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And this is what explains why work is to us what it is today. After the, the sin of Adam, God says to Adam, Genesis three seventeen to 19 Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you will eat bread Till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, the new reality that we face today is that there are two things which have corrupted the goodness of work. Two things. Number one, our own depravity. Sin in us. So that now, rather than reflecting the glory of God in our works, we look at our works as a way to get glory for ourselves. Or rather than reflecting the glory of God in our works, we refuse to work so that we do not give glory to God. Again, that just arises out of the the depravity of man's soul. We also deal with a second issue in our work, and that's we live in a sin-cursed world. Not only do we express depravity, but also we 
we see that the world itself groans under the curse of God. God cursed the ground. And so from that moment on, Adam would not subdue the earth without pain. He would not eat bread without sweat and trouble. And that's what we find ourselves in. But let's remember this. The problem is not with work itself. The problem is not with industriousness. The problem is not with productivity. We are to reflect the glory of God. And so those must be part of our lives. And God himself is a working God. The problem is not with work. It's with us. And that leads to a second lesson that Proverbs teaches in response to the reality of sin and the reality of life outside the garden. It's this, a biblical esteem for work requires the mortification of laziness. A biblical esteem for work requires the intentional, active mortification of laziness. This is going to be for man the greatest problem with respect to work. Sin's perversion of the image of God in man has resulted in a corruption of our attitude toward work. And consequently, a significant portion of Proverbs' teaching about work deals with identifying the ways in which a corrupt work ethic evidences itself in man. Proverbs spends more time talking about the negative aspects related to work rather than the positive ones. And it does so to to identify for us as those who walk according to the fear of God, who want to grow in wisdom, who want to glorify God in our lives, that we would be able to identify in our own lives where this corruptness, where this perversion of work, where where it manifests itself. And one of the key areas that Proverbs identifies is the problem of laziness, slothfulness, A favorite term in the book of Proverbs to describe this this significant problem is the word sluggard. It's a very important term. In fact, it's unique to the book of Proverbs. It's found 14 times in Proverbs. And it always is found in context and with a connotation of of, of a negative moral state. A sluggard is not just a person who doesn't work. A sluggard, because he doesn't work, is immoral. That's the lesson of Proverbs. The sluggard is a term of negative moral value. It's not just an economic term. It doesn't just describe a a physical state. It is a moral designation. And it is always negative. And when we look at the book of Proverbs and look at the term sluggard, as, as well as all the other descriptions that are used in the book of Proverbs for this problem of laziness, we can come up with, I'm going to give you seven characteristics quickly here of the sluggard. Seven characteristics of a sluggard. And this is important. And I don't want you just to appreciate this for the, 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 you know, the, how it's expressed by Proverbs, because some of these Proverbs are very picturesque. I don't want you just to stay at that level of appreciating the literary 
expression of Proverbs. I want you to examine yourself and identify where this might exist in your own life. Number one, a sluggard relaxes. A sluggard sleeps when he should be laboring. That's one of the key descriptions. A sluggard relaxes when he should be laboring. So Proverbs chapter 10 verse 5 says this, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. The idea here is that you have this comparison between the one who is working. He is already gathering in summer, gathering for the winter, and that is one who acts wisely. He is a delight. But then there is one who sleeps in harvest. In an agrarian culture, the harvest is always the most busiest time of the year. You don't sleep very much in harvest. You can't afford to take days off. You must work. But the sluggard relaxes when he should be laboring. A second characteristic brought out in the book of Proverbs is this. The sluggard relaxes even before his work is complete. He may start work, but a common characteristic of a sluggard is that he does not finish. He does not finish. He has tasks and obligations and responsibilities. He may rise in the morning or in the afternoon to begin those things, but he never brings them to completion. An example of this is Proverbs 12, verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. Now look at the first half of that proverb. Let me repeat it again. A lazy man does not roast his prey. Now what is, what is Solomon getting at here? He's depicting the person who will have put some effort into the hunt, even to the point of being able to to kill game, to get his food that he needs. But what does he do? He comes home, he's tired, he does not prepare the meat, instead leaves it on the counter, goes to sleep, and the meat spoils. That is the picture of a sluggard. Now, that, that's a picturesque way to remember it, but think of that in real life. How many men do just that in their work? They're the kind of men who, you know, will begin work on a car in their front yard and, you know, stays there for a year and a half. Or you drive by the house and you drive by one day and all of a sudden you see blue tarp over the roof, right? He's going to repair the roof. And you drive by it again next week and it's still there. And six months later, the blue tarp is still over the roof. And then you drive by a year later and the tarp is tattered and it's raining through the tarp. That's the picture of a sluggard. And we could obviously just ask our wives about the to-do list around the home. How many things have been started but never finished? And Proverbs describes the sluggard in that way. He does not finish his work. Before he gets to the end, he's too tired. He's got to take a break. He's got to rest. Never returns. Number three, a sluggard relaxes to the detriment of those around him. A sluggard relaxes to the detriment of those around him. This is, this is selfishness of the sluggard. Notice, for example, Proverbs 10 verse 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, 
so is the lazy one to those who send him. We've got a dentist here in the front row. Vinegar to the teeth. Probably not a good, not a good thing. It's acid. Where's the teeth? The enamel away, right? In other words, it's irritating. It's unhealthy. Or smoke to the eyes. No one wants smoke in their eyes. And Solomon uses these two analogies to refer to the lazy one in the, the presence of his employer, the one who sends him. He's an irritation to them. Why? Because he is so lazy. Or another proverb is Proverbs 18 verse 9. He who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Think of that. He also who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now, we often think of laziness as a kind of passive sin. But Solomon equates the sluggard with the one who would vandalize. With the one who would destroy. And he he freely puts them in the same category because of the ultimate impact of their life. Their selfishness leads to destruction. It destroys the lives of those around. And certainly, how many families have been destroyed by lazy husbands and fathers? It is the greatest It is the greatest reason for a perpetual cycle of poverty in our country today. Fathers who do just that. They might not take the spray can and go out and spray graffiti over the neighbor's wall, but their impact is just the same in their own family. Number four, the sluggard relaxes in defiance of the counsel of others. A sluggard is one who will be admonished, will be told, hey, you need to work, you need to get up, time to get up, you need to get busy, you need to supply for your family, all this counsel. And the sluggard is known by one who, though he receives this counsel, just keeps relaxing despite it. Proverbs 26, 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give discreet answers. Seven men will come to the sluggard and say, you need to work, and the sluggard will sleep right through it. Number five, the sluggard relaxes by exaggerating the risk of work. Listen to that one. The sluggard relaxes by exaggerating the risk of work. There are several, two in particular, two Proverbs that really bring this out. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see how Solomon, writing a, 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 a many, many centuries ago, could speak to our day. Notice Proverbs 22 verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. The same thing in Proverbs 26, 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. And why does the sluggard say that? It's too dangerous. I can't leave my home. I'm going to die. And you take that mentality and you see that pervasively in our culture today. Where men won't work because they're afraid of, of hitting their thumb with the hammer. Or stretching a muscle. Solomon foretold it and said that's a sluggard. He will always 
justify his inactivity by refusing to work because of a supposed risk. I like what John Piper said about that text. He said this, this is what the sluggard is doing. He deeply desires to stay at home and not work. There is no good reason to stay at home. So what does he do? Does he overcome his bad desire? No. He uses his mind to create unreal circumstances to justify his desire. He may even believe the creation of his mind. Deception can cross from moral depravity to mental derangement, from deceiving others to deceiving ourselves. And that's what we have today, even in this current context, where the concept of the virus is keeping so many people home simply out of fear. There is a lion in the streets. I see one of teachers from the LAUSD here. I won't follow too much up on that, but I would say this. Our public education system is filled with people who believe this kind of risk. Number six, the sluggard relaxes even though it restricts him to a life of menial labor. The sluggard relaxes even though it restricts him to a life of menial labor. Proverbs 12 verse 24 This is just an observation that Solomon makes about the reality of life in this world. He says this, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. The slack hand, the negligent hand, the lazy hand will be put to forced labor. What is Solomon getting at here? He's pointing to this fact that, and we see it it played out for us as well, day after day in in our culture, in this economy, and every economy, that the one who is lazy will never rise higher than the lowest rungs of employment. That those who take the path of laziness and slothfulness will be consigned forever to the most menial kinds of labor because they just cannot be trusted with anything more. That's why he says, it is the hand of the diligent that rule. You don't put a lazy man in charge of a company. You don't put a lazy man in charge of a hospital or other employees. You don't do anything like that with a lazy man. Instead, you you put him where he can have the least influence on others. And that's at the lowest rung of the ladder. So you can know that if you are lazy, you will be consigned to this. Let it be known. Let the hearer Hear and let the reader understand. Number seven, the the seventh characteristic is this. The sluggard relaxes even on the edge of poverty. Poverty is staring him in the face and a sluggard will still be lazy. Proverbs 6 verses 9 to 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Your poverty will assault you like a violent, uh, violent criminal. It's staring you in the face. Here's the warning. The alarm system is going off, but the sluggard turns over, rolls over on the couch and catches more sleep. Hey, when I was a young kid, 
as I said, my dad's a farmer. My dad would often repeat this, and as a young kid, this was annoying. He would repeat this over and over. Every time that I wanted to go inside, I was tired of the day or didn't want to do the next task that he had given to me, he would say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And that, at that time in my life, that was just one of the most annoying things that my dad would say. And he repeated it over and over again. But I am so glad he did. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and you fill in the rest. Laziness in Proverbs, as one commentator said, is more than a character flaw. It is a moral issue. And we can look at practical consequences of this. I won't spend a lot of time on this because our time is short for today. We're not even going to get through all that we planned. We'll push it into next week. But just quickly, some practical consequences of laziness. Number one, if you're lazy, not only are these characteristics true of you, but this is what happens in your practical everyday living. Number one, you're exposed to and and you become ensnared in all kinds of sinful habits. Man was made to work. Man was made to work. And when you don't work, you have free time. And that is a dangerous thing for a healthy man. It is a dangerous thing for a healthy man. Charles Spurgeon stated it this way, idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. And so one of the things that I'll tell men who are struggling with some bad sin habits is, you know what? Yes, you've got to you got to mortify these sins. You've got to put on Christ. You've got to put on virtue. But let me give you a practical advice. You've got to fill your life up with things that are productive to others. Get busy in service. Get busy in activity. Get out of your bedroom. Get out off the couch and get to work. You're made to work. And when you don't work, you're a target. Number two, involvement in shady schemes and dishonest practices. Dishonest, shady schemes, uh, you know, the pyramid schemes of those people who are lazy and don't want to work. They want the get-rich-quick kind of thing. And so they're tempted by these illicit uh, proposals. And they're tempted by dishonest practices. They'll file for benefits they don't deserve. And they'll tweak their answers on the tax return to get a little bit more back that they don't deserve. And all kinds of things like this. We just even read of this or heard of this recently with all the unemployment benefits that were wrongly stolen from the state of California by lazy people. It happens all the time. Calling in sick when you just want to spend the day on the couch and watch TV. Or even gambling. Gambling. You know, who are the people most apt to gamble? The lazy. They want money quickly without effort. Reminds me, John Flavel said this, Sin brought in sweat, but now not to sweat increases sin. He that lives idly cannot live honestly. He that lives idly cannot live honestly. Another one, propagation of the welfare state and, 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 and higher penalties for hardworking individuals. When you're lazy, what happens? It perpetuates a welfare state. Well, we can't let you... Just waste away in hunger. We've got to feed you. We've got to house you somewhere. We've got to give you some kind of benefits. So what happens? What happens? Well, those who have diligently worked, they're penalized. They're penalized for another person's laziness. And so they get 
higher taxation. They've worked harder, been more diligent. And so the government comes along and says, you know what, we need your money to foster this person. We don't expect anything of him, just let it go and you'll just, you'll just sponsor him. You don't have a choice. Another one is abuse of the charity of God's people, leaving less for those in true need. There are those who are truly in need, who have gone through situations that are not of their own making. Catastrophes, calamities that by God's providence have been brought into their lives for a time of trial. And the church needs to be there. God's people must be there to to support those. But what happens when the lazy ask for the church's charity? They deplete the resources of God's people so that those who really do need it, those who have lost houses due to disasters, who have lost work because of serious health issues, that the church and God's people cannot support them. Another problem of laziness is the perpetuation of poverty for the family. This is perhaps the most saddening one, that a lazy man influences children and never sets them up for success in their lives, never leaves to them an inheritance, in fact, becomes a mooch off of his own children. And it perpetuates this ongoing poverty for the family. Sad. And finally, we could say this, it defiles the image of God. As I said, you are made to work. And certainly you must redeem that that understanding of work, you, you cannot work from a sinful attitude. You must have the wisdom of God, but you are made to work. And by being lazy, you defile God's image in you. Number three, we'll go through this quickly. This will be our last one for tonight. Biblical, a biblical esteem for work prioritizes diligent labor before reward. A biblical esteem for work prioritizes diligent labor before reward. In response to the sin of laziness, Proverbs describes hard work and diligence. That's the solution. It prescribes this practice of sustained discipline as the way of wisdom. To know how to live in this world where both you deal with the sinfulness of your flesh and you deal with a world under the curse. The response, diligence, diligence. And we see this repeated many times, but let me just highlight one. Proverbs 10 verse 4. The hand of the diligent makes rich. The hand of the diligent makes rich. It lifts them out of need. And once again, we see the law of cause and effect in God's universe. The cause here is diligent labor and the effect is profit. That's how we are to understand this this world in which we live. Diligent labor will lead, in general terms, to profit. And we see that, for example, in Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Go to the ant. Now, what's amazing here is the ant actually says nothing. Ants ants don't speak. But their example is so powerful that, that the lesson is inescapable. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The ant needs no one as a slave master to crack the whip. The ant just instinctively does what it needs to do. And Solomon says, that simple animal, that insect I should say, gives you all you need to know about how you're to live your life. 
You shouldn't need an employer over you to crack the whip. You shouldn't need a, a dad that's kicking you out of the bed and off the couch. You shouldn't need someone to to threaten you with eviction from your apartment. As a Christian, as a God-fearer, you have the example of one of these insects that tells you that you don't need that. You're much better. You're much higher. You have the image of God in you. you. You should not need these external compulsions. Look at Proverbs 10 verses 4 to 5. Or Proverbs 12 verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthlessness, worthless things, lacks sense. Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your work outside, then make it ready for yourself. Make, make it ready for yourself in the field, and then afterwards build your house. Now we have a whole generation, young generation now, that has it exactly the reverse. I have a right to housing. I have a right to housing. And then I'll work. Biblical wisdom has it the other way around. You have a responsibility to work. Do your work first and then the house. That's biblical wisdom. The fundamental lesson involved in this is the concept of delayed gratification. That that. The gratification, the experience of the fruit must always be, be pushed to after the labor. And let me just address you young men. This is so very important for you especially. Because those gray hairs who are in here have learned this lesson either from their parents or they've learned it the hard way. But you young men, this is where you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna struggle. Because it's so much a part of our culture that we want the gratification now. Give me the expensive tech toys. Give me, the, give, give me the car, the nice car. Give me that Cadillac education. Give it to me now. And then maybe I'll pay for it later. I, I, there's this idea that you, you get to enter life at the level of your parents and their success. And you just take it from there rather than realizing you must build from the bottom up. It's that mentality that is leading to this whole socialistic idea that is sweeping the country. I want everything now. Now. And it is injustice if I cannot experience it now. If I cannot have it now. If you tell me I have to work first, that's unjust. That idea has ravaged the younger generation. You know, here's some proverbs from the sluggard. If we would put these... You know, if we would say that the sluggard could actually come up with two sentences that fit together, it'd be this. The sluggard would say this, never accomplish today what you can put off for tomorrow. That's the proverb of a sluggard. And connected to that, it's this, never delay to tomorrow what you can enjoy today. No concept of delayed gratification, no concept of work then reward It is the problem that we face today and it is the manifestation of selfishness that arises from the sinful flesh. Well, we're going to leave it at that for today. We only got through three. We're going to get through seven, I hope, next week. These are three important lessons about a biblical work ethic. These are very important and I 
trust as you look at these things, two things I, I really encourage you to do. First of all, if you are a man here who has learned these lessons, and perhaps that's been because God is gracious and has given you good mentors over life, good parents, used to be part of what parents would teach children. Maybe you are the recipient of that. And now you're in the later years of life and you've seen how these things work. My exhortation to you is get involved in young men's lives because they're not getting this message today. So get involved and speak out and teach them wisdom with respect to work. And for those of you who are young men here today and you're just starting off in your careers, be very, very careful. The university systems, the public education system, the government is attempting in many ways to create a dependency upon it, upon the system. And it is perpetuating, propagating ideas and ideologies that are directly contrary to biblical wisdom. And so what you need to do is turn off those mediums and you need to, to, to find these, these wise men who have been through life, learned these lessons. You need to listen to them and listen to what they say about how to develop a healthy work ethic. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We can't imagine what it would be like to live in this world, especially today, with so many sources of information and so many preachers of ideologies and ideas that if we didn't have your word, where would we be? Your word gives us the wisdom we need for the hour. And it's so amazing to think that this wisdom was inscripturated thousands of years ago, and yet because it comes from you, it is just as fresh and relevant and authoritative as ever. We pray you take these truths, press them down, into us deeply. And ultimately, that as we pursue a biblical work ethic, our number one motivation would always be to reflect your glory back to you. That we would be stewards of the amazing giftedness, the image that you have left in us. And, and even though sin has tainted it and, and, and corrupted it, redemption has has brought about a, a, a reconstruction of this image and we have the ability as Christian men today to work in such a way as to give glory to you through our labors. What an awesome privilege. We pray you'd lay it on our hearts to make that our ambition. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.